another episode of the Agile Weekly Podcast. I'm Clayton Langelzigich. And I'm Roy Vanwater. And today we're talking about an article that we came across, uh, I think it was this week. It's called The High Cost and Negative Value of Pair Programming. Uh, it's by Capers Jones at the Nam Cook Analytics blog. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, basically, it's a like a white paper almost about why pair programming is harmful and it's not really a good idea and you shouldn't do it, or at least you shouldn't do it yet until you do lots of research about it. And we, I kind of struck a chord, I guess. Um, we came across it on um, across the post on Twitter and kind of generated some buzz on there. And then we talked about it internally. So we were hoping to kind of just share our ideas, I guess. Um, the first point that I thought was that kind of resonated with me was the author makes mention that pair programming is something that came out of the non I don't know, scientific. It wasn't very, it wasn't measured very well in the agile community. And I think Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd probably give him that, that the agile community has lots of things that we do that are not necessarily based on hard scientific evidence. A lot of it's just anecdotal experience. So, I mean, I think that's probably a fair statement. It Um, becomes very difficult too, though. Like, I think we that's something we've run into the past, right? Where it becomes, uh, because of the nature of every team being different, different projects being different, the code bases being different, like a lot of the pair programming, and not just pair programming, a lot of the types of practices that teams are experimenting with are very difficult to measure in a scientific way. Like it's very difficult to have a control group that's identical except for this one variable. Yeah, so I think the, the thing that was, you know, while I agree with that general um, idea that the edge community isn't very scientific about how they measure things, mm-hmm. I thought the way that they went up, the author goes about measuring things in the article was kind of lame because they just made up a bunch of stuff and put it in Excel, it seems like. So, I don't know. I guess you have to take that with a grain of salt. The thing that I thought was most interesting in the beginning is that the author tries to make the point um, that the there's a lot of different scenarios about pair programming that were not considered in most cases. And he goes through all these different examples of you know single programmers using static analysis versus expert single programmers compared to average pairs and novice pairs compared to and all these 10 different permutations of all right. these different things. Which... I guess there's probably not many organizations that have all of these things, and they probably only have two or three at most. Um, and so I thought it was odd that you know you go so far out of your way to make a big point of not comparing all these things, especially when there probably isn't a whole lot of opportunity to compare them all. So I thought the static analysis bit was interesting because he specifically talks about the number of defects that a single programmer using static analysis produce versus a programmer, uh, a pair program, like two, two pairs programming produce. And I think the, the ratio is something like a single programmer um, using static analysis develops one defect for every 15 that the pair programmer develop. And I guess maybe I don't understand what static analysis is because I just, I, I don't know, I, I guess I don't understand. Do you mind explaining real quick? Well, I mean, I think like the idea that static analysis is going to evaluate your code and find defects for you, uh... I mean, I, I've written plenty of defects that static analysis wouldn't have caught. And there's plenty of things that static analysis would tell you that wouldn't be a defect that you could go mm-hmm. spend a bunch of time fixing. So that seems like it's just a silly thing to even bring up. Um, I think static analysis can be important. It can, it can hint you in the right direction and help you find different things with your code. But the idea that it's like this uh, great tool for finding defects or even a tool for finding defects seems like kind of a stretch. But mo- kind of moving on. Um, and so... You know, another downside uh, the author states for pair programming is that it won't scale. And so the example he gives is, you know, a huge software project with 500 engineers, uh, and how could you get them to pair? And how could you hire 500 more people? Uh, which seems odd because 
any software project that had 500 people working on the same thing, um, that sounds like a nightmare no matter what you're doing. Right, exactly. Like, you're going to have so many people doing uh, random random things and wasting a ton of time, like, even pair programming. Like, it, at that point, when you have a project that big, it becomes unmanageable. And I think I'd rather have, um, you know, if it's 500 people across an entire organization all working on different things, mm-hmm. then I think that's, you can still pair. There's nothing that says you couldn't. So the idea that it wouldn't scale, uh, that seems kind of silly. Well, I guess that's the, okay, but the, I, I guess that's the the mindset difference, right? Because he, he's th- thinking from the perspective of, I have 500 people and I need to maintain my current productivity level, which means I have to hire 500 more. Instead of saying I have 500 people, that means I have 250 pairs. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and then uh, kind of the next thing that... Um, that's a problem with pair programming is why hasn't this been tried with other like business functions or other uh, mm-hmm. job functions? So they talk about architects and BAs and testers and all these other things, which I think if you talk to people who are actually doing pair programming, um, they probably have tried to do some form of pairing with people that are not just software developers. Yeah. So this one kind of stuck out as me at, stuck out to me as someone you know, this kind of betrayed the the experience that the author has with pair programming and the idea that no one has ever tried that before. Yeah, kind of. In fact, in my experience, the the biggest gains from pair programming come when when you have the most different types of experiences combining, right? So, like, say you have like a graphic designer and a programmer or something like as different as possible, because if you have, if you put two people that are almost identical in front of a computer, like the most you're gonna get out of it is maybe slightly lower defect rate because one of them is proofreading what the other one's writing. But if you have two people that have totally different ways of approaching the problem, like that allows you this greater, that, that gives a pair a greater diversity of options to choose from and it makes it more likely that they might pick the right one. Yeah, the thing I, that struck me as like the biggest like bullshit indicator of the whole article was that one of the measurements that um, that's used in this calculation is lines of code and so the measurement is how fast is an expert single programmer based on how many lines of code they write. Mm-hmm. And that's what is used in all the economic calculations. Sure. So I wouldn't doubt that pair programming is probably more expensive and probably slower than single people working on things. But that's entirely ignoring all the other benefits that you can get. And if you're just doing lines of code, if you're working on a software project that all it matters is that you're just pumping out lines of code, then just like, you know, hire a bunch of monkeys and they can just pound on the keyboard, right? I mean, you don't need pair programming at that point. So it seemed like an an odd comparison. I I would even say that if your software project is so simple that you can just crank out lines of code, then you probably don't get any benefit from pairing as far as collaboration or anything. You probably don't get any benefit from collaboration of any form. You should probably just outsource and try to get your code written as cheap as possible. Right, because if all it really takes is that you just or pumping out code, then you can just replace that person with someone else and it doesn't matter. But that's not the case, I think, in most software organizations. I was, was going to say, like, how many projects are actually out there that where you can just put anybody in front of it and pump out code? Well, and I think a lot of people try and do that, especially, I would say, you know, shops that are doing, like, outsourced software development where mm-hmm. they're solving the same problem multiple times, they probably do just have a set way of doing things where they could get pretty close to just pumping things out and it doesn't really matter who's working on it. But for most organizations that are developing either products for customers or developing products for internal customers where there is a need for that collaboration and getting some creativity and having that redundancy uh, so that you don't have the single point of failure with the one person who knows everything. That's true. Uh, you know. That's one thing that's not really acknowledged all that much. I believe one of the lines in that, that article states like um, uh, something about like, if you look at the data in table three, like you can clearly see that the most efficient course of action is to hire a bunch of individual expert programmers. And if you followed many of our podcasts in the 
in the past, I, you, then you'll know that that does not really well, yeah. vibe very well with, with the way we like to work. And well, that, that sets organizations up for failure because you end up with all of these single points of failure where if any one of them, any, each one is a link in the chain. And if anyone's gone, then like the organi- organization falls apart. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the single expert programmer is usually a hero and a cowboy, right? Mm-hmm. So they're the ones that are going to stay up till 3 a.m. heroing some solution for some problem. Right. And then they're going to cowboy pumping code out lots way. of lines of code. Yeah, exactly. And they're going to cowboy code their way through everything else. Um, and if you ask any, you know, IT hiring manager, the idea that you can just go pluck, um, you know, expert programmers off the right. street, which to the author's credit, he does make a point that that probably only makes up about 10% of the, the hiring pool uh, that's available, the programming talent. But I feel like that advice is, you know, you should only hire expert programmers is like telling your little sister, you know, you should only date guys that are really nice to you and that are financially secure and that treat you with respect. Like that's not going to be everybody in the world. That's probably not very good advice. Right? I don't want my d- sister dating everybody in the world, though. Well, I agree. But the idea that you know, a hiring manager is just going to go out there and find some expert programmer and say, hey, we can solve all of our problems by hiring three of you instead of having you know, a few pairs. That's true. That seems kind of silly. Well, I think it's short-sighted, too, to think of things in terms of um, moving faster because you have a pair or uh, because it's a single person moving faster. Right, but if you have a single person making poor decisions and maybe moving very quickly, but creating this monstrosity that's going to be impossible to maintain, sure you're moving faster for now, right, for the next few weeks. But then all of a sudden, when defect, uh, like when defects come in or change requirements come in or whatever, and you start needing to adapt the the system to meet the new demand, that's all of a sudden when things start to slow down because you didn't slow down to begin with. Yeah, this seems. I mean, the way that the the example is set up in the article. It's very um, like tipped in favor of the single programmer and not in favor of a more, I would say, real world scenario, or at least a scenario that we see with our clients mm-hmm. that have a dynamic application or a legacy system, or they're trying to build a new product and they need lots of creativity and they need that collaboration so that they can get lots of different ideas and so that there's the redundancy. You know, those are the things they need. They don't need people just right. pumping out code well that's that's i think we see and every almost every organization that i've ever worked with the biggest problem has always been with figuring out what to build not building something quickly like building building something as fast as possible has never been the issue well and i would say the the other thing i think that we see a lot is there are uh, there are scenarios where saving money is a beneficial thing. And I think mm-hmm. this article comes from the standpoint, uh, the fact that they bring it up in the very beginning, that agilists are not very good with economics, or at least that's the claim they're making, um, drives to the point, I think, where all they really care about is the bottom line, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think if you um, if you spend enough time in the community, you realize that going faster and like more, better, faster, cheaper, that line, which is, I think, how a lot of people view Agile, uh, maybe Scrum especially. And Lean as well. Well, you know, if we, I think especially Scrum, if we just do, if we do Scrum, then our teams will be faster, they'll be right. cheaper, they'll be better, whatever. I mean, if that's the only thing you're driving for, then I think this article is appealing to you. If all you care about is dollars and cents. Well, maybe Agile isn't for you if you're doing that. Right. And that's why I would say that you probably don't even have the culture in your organization to support pair programming if mm-hmm. all you care about is the bottom line. Because there's no way you could look at a pair versus a single person and determine that, you know, oh, the pair is more expensive, but that's okay. Like, that's not going to be your mindset. You're going to think of them as this pair is more expensive and you're not going to see the benefits that you get from pair programming. Right. So you're just going to ignore it out of hand, which I think is who this article appeals to. Absolutely. I mean, it's the huge disparity between, you know, thinking of these things as just a set of processes and tricks and tips and tricks to try to make things more efficient or to make things better rather than 
looking at it as a value system where you're completely changing the way that the, the human beings within your organization interact. Yeah, I mean, it's that you're changing the way that people will write that software. Right. And, and I think the kind of closing point about divided work, um, I thought this was just another one that just seemed kind of ridiculous out of hand as well. I don't think there's anything that you could compare between pair programming, two people sitting down writing software, like a fe- software feature. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's comparable to military command whatsoever, other than the fact that there are two people. So the idea that you would say divided work can be harmful because look at these examples of things that don't work. They're not the same thing. It's apples and oranges at that point. Well, let's look at it from the perspective of decision-making ability, right? Where if you have two people sitting in front of a, a computer and they have to make a decision, they could potentially argue about it for half an hour to an hour. And in the software development world, like arguing about something for half an hour to an hour is no big deal. But I could understand that in a military engagement, like that, that might be a huge problem. Right. Because right? I mean, software is malleable, right? You, you, know, right. you and I could sit down and pair program and we could come up with some solution. And then maybe, you know, we, we go away from the weekend, we talk to some friend and they have a, you know, they mention something that triggers an idea. We can come back and change that. There's nothing, you know, you can't change sending your tanks into battle. You can't just do over. There's no undo. Well, but it is pretty common to see, um, lar- especially large groups get crippled by shared indecision. It's like everybody wants to go in a different direction. And I could, I can definitely see that extending all the way down to pairs as well, where two people with fundamentally different mindsets want to go in different directions. But I think that ends up being a much larger organizational problem in that that probably speaks towards a lack of shared vision for the project, right? Because if everybody's on the same page with where the project's headed, then the implementation details of going one direction or another, if they're both headed in the same way, like it doesn't become as much of an argument. Well, and I've seen that on teams where pairs will have like very, especially if you get two people that are very strong willed, they'll have very different ideas of how the system should be architected or whatever the case may be. But when the team doesn't have trust and they don't have like collective code ownership with standards, that's when you get people who say, we should use this library. And the other person says, no, we should use that one. When really it's the team that should basically be figuring out when we have to solve this kind of problem, we're going to do it this way. For now. Yeah. Once you get over that problem. And you say, I think a great example that we always had with old Integrum was authentication stuff. There's mm-hmm. so 50 different ways you could do authentication in Rails. We picked one, and that was how we did authentication. And that solved the problem of two people pairing and saying, well, my you know pet library that I think is really great is this one. And then the person saying, no, 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 we should do this way. And then it was you had two different ways in this project that were inconsistent with what the team thought was the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you can get over those kind of things, I think that's how you can you can kind of solve some of those problems that... They might seem like problems with pairing, but I don't think they really are. That's true. I think every single one of the the items you listed really speak towards larger organizational problems that have absolutely nothing to do with pairing. Like if these are the things, if these are the reasons why you don't want to do pairing, then maybe you shouldn't be doing pairing yet because your organization's not ready and your organization needs some significant changes before. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think if you're totally swayed by the economic argument, then you're missing all the other benefits that you get. Mm -hmm. And if that's where you are, then you're probably not ready to be doing, you're not ready to be awesome. If I put my Derek hat on for a second, I would say it's expensive and it's difficult to be awesome. And if you're going to fall back on some excuse about how it's too expensive and with all these kind of bullshit um, calculators that you wrote in Excel, then too bad. Like you don't get a taste of the awesome. Fair enough. All right. Thanks. See you next time. Bye-bye. Is there something you'd like to hear in a future episode? 
head over to enneagramtech.com slash podcast where you can suggest a topic or a guest. Looking for an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news, techniques, and events in the Agile community? Sign up today at agileweekly.com. It's the best Agile content delivered weekly for free. The Agile Weekly podcast is brought to you by Enneagram Technologies and recorded at Gangplank Studios in Chandler, Arizona. For old episodes, check out enneagramtech.com or subscribe on iTunes. Need help with your Agile transition? Have a question and need to phone a friend? Try calling the Agile Hotline. It's free. Call 866-244-8656.